Okay. Um, I'll just I'll make it brief so we have a lot of time for these two guys. Um, I'll just say very briefly a few words about the forum, uh, about this event, uh, and why I hope uh, it's going to be interesting and hopefully um, will perhaps lead to, to future events on this topic as well. First of all, my name is Christina Muslert. I'm a fellow here at the Philosophy Department and I'm the Deputy Director of the Forum for European Philosophy. For those of you who haven't been at one of our events before, uh, the Forum is an educational charity which is based here at the LSE, and our mission, so to speak, is to bring philosophical thinking very broadly construed into the public, um, identify questions that are of interest to broader public, um, improve dialogue also between philosophy and other disciplines, um, and most people have our current programs, so you can have a look at the kinds of things that we do. Um, one thing that we thought uh, would be a, a very interesting topic to address is the topic of photography, because um, I think there's lots of interesting issues that are philosophically interesting with regard to photography, one of them obviously being the one that we're going to talk about today, namely the ethics of photojournalism, but I'm sure we can all think of other topics as well, uh, the aesthetics of photography, photography and its relation to other art forms, issues to do with um, reality and fiction, representation and so on. And so in a way I hope that this event today will be actually um, the start in a series of events perhaps uh, on that topic. Um, so before I introduce the two speakers, I would just briefly like to thank um, Patrick Wilkin, my husband, who is a very keen photographer with a lot of interest in photography and who encouraged me to think about this in the first place. Um, and then also Hugh Luke, who made very useful suggestions. In particular, he suggested that I take a look at Simon Norfolk's work and get in touch with him, which I did. Um, so a few, just a few words about um, Simon. As you, most of you will probably know, um, Simon is a a very well well known and uh, photographer was won many many awards. He also has an uh, interesting background in philosophy and sociology. So uh, one more reason to invite him to this sort of interdisciplinary dialogue. Um, he's done for a number of years now really interesting work in Afghanistan. So he did um, a book entitled Afghanistan Chronotopia, uh, covering the uh, Afghanistan War in 2001, which won a lot of awards and it was widely acclaimed. More recently, he's returned to Afghanistan and has a new book um, entitled Burke and Norfolk, which you can see here and which you will have the opportunity to purchase after the talk if you're interested. Um, so that's the book uh, there. And he also currently has an exhibition in the Tate Modern, which I highly recommend if you haven't seen it yet. Um, in fact, you could even go after this talk tonight. I think the Tate is open till 10 p.m. tonight. So you can go and see it afterwards if you're interested. Um, okay, and his uh, partner in this dialogue will be Robbins, who is a philosophy professor and head of the philosophy department here at the LSE. Um, he has many different research interests, including um, ethical theory, philosophy of economics, philosophy and public policy, um, rational choice, and he has also published some interesting work on precisely the ethics of photojournalism, so we thought that he would be an ideal partner for this dialogue. Uh, and so before taking too much uh, taking up too much time, I will hand the word over to um, Simon and Luke. We will start, I think, with a presentation by Simon. Then Luke will raise some uh, philosophically interesting questions, and then we'll hopefully have quite a lot of time for questions and contributions from you. So um, I hand the word over to Simon. Right, so, good. Uh, well, um, 
slightly hearing false pretenses because, I mean, I, I, uh, 10 years ago I was a photojournalist and I uh, spent about 10 years uh, since leaving college as a photojournalist making a living very much, dashing around London, photographing events and then running into newspapers with rolls of film. Uh, but uh, in the last uh, 10 or 12 years, a very much, um, a very deliberate and determined attempt to get away from a lot of photojournalism's values, a lot of the ways that it uh, compromised, the things that I wanted to talk about, uh, a lot of the problems it has with its economy, uh, a lot of problems with its political economy, uh, but also uh, primarily the problems with uh, really attaching the meanings to the word that I wanted the word, the word to have, uh, and my lack of control over that. So the word that I'm going to show you is the most uh, current thing that I've done, uh, which is, you know, hopefully interesting because it's the most recent thing that I've done, but also uh, really interesting because I, I believe that it's the best stab that I've had at the moment at trying to resolve some of these problems of how do you make a piece of work that leaps over photojournalism's problems in terms of its uh, inarticulacy, its, uh, uh, its, its uh, reductionism, and all those kind of problems. Um, and then afterwards we can talk about whether or not that's successful. Um, uh, the, the, work that, the work that I have on at Tate Modern at the moment is a project that's about um, returning after 10 years to Afghanistan to see how that country has changed and try and do uh, uh, something about the changes in that country. It's also meant to be something of a take on uh, my attempt to redefine photojournalism perhaps. Certainly try and have a go at redefining uh, uh, war photography. Um, this is me. I'm a gay cosmonaut. This is my. Uh, <laughs> uh, this is the picture. That, this is the portrait that I had made of myself when I was in Afghanistan in 2001. And I produced a piece of work into, uh, that was uh, quite successful in 2001. That was photographing the kind of um, uh, the detritus and the rubble of what I found after this warfare had taken place. It was a sort of aftermath photography using a very large uh, a, a camera. Uh, bit. This isn't the camera that I use. It's a large wooden and brass camera that's shooting 5.4 film. And the pictures were pictures of um, the, the aftermath, the kind of smouldering remains of what had been in this place. And um, uh, I wanted to go back to Afghanistan for a long time because politically, you know, when I switch to tell you, I'm angry about what I see in what's going on there, and I feel that I ought to be engaged with that and have something to say. But for a long time, I never really felt I could find any kind of vehicle to take me there. I felt like I was um, blocked out of it, even though I was angry about the photojournalism that goes on there, angry about embedding and the way embedding has neutralized any kind of political response to what happens there. But also a feeling that if I went there and I photographed, this is a picture from 2001. Uh, this kind of neoclassical ruins of some great civilization, perhaps, that's been in this place, uh, that it would simply be a sort of comparator problem. Uh, there's a tradition in photography called re-photographic re projects. And the kind of daddy of those is a man called Mark Klett, who took his camera to where all the places in the American Southwest where there's great American landscape photographs of the wilderness have been made, and re-photographed those in the end of the 70s and again at the beginning of the 90s to see how the American West had been changed. Uh, in 160 years, 150 years. So the the pictures that I you know that I could have done, could, it seemed to me that it would be a very dry sort of. And on the left hand, 2001, and on the right hand, 2010. Uh, not particularly interesting, I don't think. And also uh, extremely dreary. After about four of them, I think you would have seen everything that I had to say. Uh, in 2001, it's a crater. In 2010, it's a pizza hut. Uh, which not only is dreary, but it's also a wrong uh, statement of what I believe is happening in Afghanistan, and the way that the economy has changed, and the way that money has been spent in that place, something like $420 billion, just the Americans have spent in that place. So money is being spent, 
but uh, it's not producing the kind of results that you would expect to seek. And even in a situation like, th like this, where this, this actually is the same as this, if you notice it, the only thing you can find is, uh, you see the lintel over this doorway here? It's about the only thing uh, that, um, that is intact. And almost everything else in the viewpoint has changed. It just seems to me that's a rather dry sort of left-hand, right-hand um, where's Wally of a photo project. Uh, and then it wasn't until I uh, came across the work of John Burt that I found some vehicle for talking about Afghanistan. It was actually quite interesting. Um, a big believer in Salvatore Rosso, who's you know, the kind of the, the over the uber romantic, but more romantic than all the other romantics, more smouldering, more gorgeous than any other romantic philosopher, romantic painter. Uh, and his painting says, or tasse, or locre meliora silentio, which is his way of saying, if you've got nothing to say, shut the fuck up. <laughs> um, so uh, when I photographed in 2001, it was successful because it was trying to portray this place as a kind of graveyard of empires, as a place where any all the great empires of the world had taken turns to sweep through this space, and each one had left behind this kind of imperial detritus. You know, Alexander the Great, on his way to India, we sweep through Afghanistan, trashes the whole thing, and then builds his version. The Persians in the, in the, in the, uh, the, the Mongol hordes in the 12th century, the Russians in the 19th century, even the Americans now, you could say, were not in Afghanistan in order to dominate that place, but rather went there in order to kill uh, Saudi Arabian and his Yemeni friends and the rest of it. So none of these empires really in Afghanistan in order to control the place, but each one of them on their way to elsewhere but each one leaving behind a kind of imperial detritus in this place. So I tried to photograph each one of these things as if they were kind of fragments, uh, archaeological fragments of some great empires that existed in this place. Uh, uh, garbage washed up at the high water mark of each of these imperial waves and deliberate attempt to make that look like that. And that, which is a western district, a middle class district on the western side of Kabul, <coughs> completely devastated in the 1990s, is meant to look like this. Uh, and this picture is obviously meant to be that. And I've been looking at a great deal of um, romantic painting from that time as well. So um, uh, a lot of the pictures were kind of bathed in a, in a sort of golden light that was something that I kind of captured from looking at Claude Lorraine and Nicolas Poussin, uh, who was trying to bathe this, this golden light across these pictures as a way of saying that what you're looking at is the, um, is this the twilight of the final years of an empire, or is this the dawn of a new beginning? And in, in 2001, I have to say, I thought the war was over. I thought this was the dawn of the beginning. I thought this was this liminal moment when Afghanistan could pick itself up and, and go on to, a, a, to, to create something new. Um, and then I was shown this, uh, this rather tatty little book, which was the first Burke album I ever saw. So John Burke was a photographer who only produced pictures for sale. People walked into a shop and said, will you photograph my cricket club or my kids? And he shot pictures of them, and he sold prints of them. And that's it. He didn't produce his, his work into books, not really into magazines, etc. on the Afghan war. Uh, and so because he didn't publish in that way, he had nothing that kind of persisted beyond him. The day he stopped taking pictures was pretty much the day his reputation died. In fact, within two years of his death, his entire business dissolved. And every single one of his negatives was smashed and destroyed, uh, and we have no record of him at all. And added to that was he wrote nothing in, in his lifetime about himself either. No diaries, no notes about his life, nothing whatsoever. Um, all we have are his pictures, a few church records that we tell us when he baptizes illegitimate children, and a few notes in the commercial newspapers about the sort of history of his business. Otherwise, there's almost been nothing at all. So that's interesting for me because it feels to me that the work I did in 2001 was not so much photographic as archaeological. My job was to find something in the kind of rubble, pull it out from under the rock, blow the dust off, and go, look at this. This, this shows you what happened in this place. It's more like uh, working in a crime scene. 
for me. It's more like an act of forensics than it is a photographic thing. To me, say, look, this tells you what happened in this place. This tells you the crime of what happened in this place. Uh, and it is very much a crime scene. So I was shown this album at the National Media Museum in uh, Bradford. Uh, I completely fell in love with it the, from the moment that I saw it. And this work is being made at a kind of... Um, it's important to me that the, the real, one of the real beefs I have with photojournalism is its lack of historical background, its, it's, it's ahistoricity. And for me, the whole purpose of going back to Afghanistan was to try to chuck it back into its historical narrative. I talked to soldiers, American and British soldiers, no notion whatsoever <coughs> that this is the fourth Anglo-Afghan war, that we've tried three previous attempts to rebuild this country, three previous attempts to, uh, uh, if we drop enough bombs and kill enough bad guys, that we can turn these people into liberal democrats and feminists. So the first Anglo-Afghan war in 1838, 1842, the second Anglo-Afghan war, the one that photographs is 1878 to 1880. The third Anglo-Afghan war, which quite frankly was rubbish, even as wars go, uh, was in 1919. It was like a bloody barroom fight and more action than that one. Uh, and this, for me, is the fourth Anglo-Afghan war. The fourth time that we've tried to invade this place and re-establish some kind of uh, uh, imperial dominance and uh, rebuild this country as a kind of civilized Western uh, liberal outpost. And each one of them more pathetic than the last, each one of them based upon more rubbish lies, each one of them the same kind of sorry arc of lied about intelligence, lied about how popular it would be, lied about how brilliantly our armies performed, lied about how we weren't going to do any atrocities to get out of there, and each one of us doing a sorry kind of tawdry deal to uh, get out the back door as soon as possible before we get sucked into a kind of Vietnam. So this, uh, sorry, that's my, uh, <laughs> for my history, history lesson sometime, it's quite sweeping. Um, so this is this, uh, this moment in the British Empire when uh, Afghanistan is being kind of um, the, the kind of uh, jam sandwich between the Russian Empire expanding south at a rate of knots and the British Empire expanding north at a rate of knots into the Hindu Kush and between that is the Afghan Emir between the Russian bear and the, and the English lion being eaten alive. And a period of, of uh, a quite colossal uh, uh, social uh, engagement with Afghanistan but not engagement through uh, popular newspapers, they weren't particularly read at that time by the majority of the population, something that was transferred into the British, uh, into the home audience through um, history painting, these colossal paintings that uh, were made at this time. And this, this, this picture is in Wolverhampton Art Gallery. It's about 14 foot across. Now there's a reason why it was 14 foot across. It was meant to be looked at by 50 people at once. That's why the damn thing's so big. These things were tremendously popular at that time. Nowadays, it's hard to find a, a gallery that will show them. Um, it's kind of Richard Clayton Woodville, uh, Woodville, who was tremendously famous in his, in his time. But you find, try to find a gallery that will show his work nowadays. It's so unpopular, it's so untrendy, no one even wants to know about these things. And so that idea about what was happening in the, in the uh, Imperial Outposts is transferred into the heartland through history painting, through music hall songs, through popular poetry. Uh, patriotic poetry, Rudyard Kipling and uh, Henry, Henry Newbolt and these kind of people, uh, and popular novels through Kim and uh, these kind of uh, Kipling novels like Kim. Uh, and it wasn't something that came via newspapers or the political parties campaign on these things, not at all. It came via these, uh, these other kind of media outlets which don't even exist anymore, you know, the music hall song for example. And the kind of person who kind of articulated this better than anyone else was Lady Elizabeth Butler, who in her era was just about the most famous uh, woman painter at the time. Uh, a woman who almost managed to bulldoze her way into the Royal Academy, and if so, she would have been the first member of the Royal Academy, first female member of the Royal Academy, uh, and came within a, a gnat's whisker of, uh, of uh, being voted in. Uh, and this painting, which I actually discovered that uh, Tate owned this painting, 
although it hasn't been out of the store since 1949, uh, they actually own this painting, and uh, I tried to get on the gallery wall. The main problem was this is about 18 foot across. <laughs> so by the time you put the gallery wall, there's no room for my stuff, and my stuff's more important. Uh, but this thing is very interesting because it is a, a, a very sharp political attack upon the British establishment. The first Anglo-Afghan War uh, ended in absolute disaster for the British. In fact, absolute disaster for empires everywhere. Uh, the first Anglo-Afghan War, British army sailed off a very easy victory, moved into Kabul, and then little by little it started to go belly up. And uh, in 1842, 1841, they were forced to perform a final <coughs> withdrawal through the passes of Afghanistan uh, back into, uh, into Jalalabad, through the Khord Kabul and through the Khyber Pass. And in the Khord Kabul, uh, in the course of four days in January of 1842, an entire British army was massacred. 16,500 and 10,000 camp followers. Every one of them had their throats slit. Uh, and this is the famous only survivor of that entire butchery. Dr. William Bryden, who managed to kind of crawl into the, these are British soldiers galloping out of the fortress of Jalalabad to bring in this uh, sorry remnant of an entire army. In actual fact, he's the only white man who survived this army. There's about 20 Indian soldiers survived. Don't get a mention. But anyway, uh, this is the only white survivor, and he, he managed to stuff a copy of a magazine inside his hat. He got hit over the head with a sword, and the magazine took the blow. Uh, and this is the reason why he survived. Uh, and this painting was produced in 1881, just at that time when the British invasion of Afghanistan was going wrong for the second time. Quite a tart, acidic little kind of knife into the side of the British establishment. And she hung it in the Royal Academy, in the, in the Academy Summer Show, as a kind of way of, as kind of up yours to the British, uh, um, British elite and what she thought about it. Interesting that Brit Elizabeth Butler was married to an Irishman who was an officer of the British Army. Uh, and uh, this is uh, Tony Blair sending the troops back into Afghanistan in 2005. Chin up, lads, you're fighting for the 21st century. Steve Bell obviously knows a lot about paintings, and more than he lets on. So this is John Burke at work. Uh, and uh, these two pictures appeared on the cover of the Graphic magazine uh, in 1879. And I think probably are the first ever pictures of a war photographer at work to appear on the cover of the magazine and the first war photographer to ever be famous whilst he's still doing the job as a war photographer. Something of a celebrity, this idea, this hagiography of the war photographer that certainly really kicked off with the life of Robert Capper, a man who spent his daytimes on the front lines and his nighttimes making love to the most beautiful women of Europe, and in between just a little bit of time to gamble thousands on the roulette tables in, <laughs> in Monte Carlo. But uh, you know that whole idea of the kind of swashbuckler, the kind of romantic lone crusader against wrong, uh, dashing into the war zone, uh, gathering in these kind of trophies of crimes and then exposing them to the outside world, single-handedly uh, righting wrongs. This, this rather sort of tousled romantic hero, which is sort of still the kind of model of how war photography is meant to be kind of, um, uh, kind of gathered in and collected, really. Uh, so Burke is the first photographer to ever enter Afghanistan. These are the first pictures that are ever made in this place. And what's, you know, I think that would be interesting, just historically interesting, to show the work. I think actually there's something much better about Burke, and I, would, I, I put this all the way through that John Burke is the greatest war photographer you never heard of. And the first thing that's really special about him is that um, the, the, the record that he gathers in Afghanistan is extraordinarily complete, really complete. It's a really uh, beautiful cross-section of an imperial encounter, of a colonial encounter, whereas a lot of the other photographers that are working in this period only really shoot two or three different kinds of pictures. They do pictures of English officers, or they do landscapes, or they do archaeological. Burke does everything. He does, uh, he does pictures of um, uh, 
archaeological sites or uh, historical monuments in the city of Kabul. He does pictures of great vistas of uh, British encampments. He does pictures of uh, historical monuments or uh, religious sites in the center of the city of Kabul. This is the, uh, uh, the Timashur Mausoleum. He does the first ever street pictures in Afghanistan. He does these amazing group portraits of uh, British officers that seem to violate all of the norms of formalities of, uh, of the way that you photograph uh, British officers. Considering he was meant to look up to these people, he approaches them with a great deal of informality. Boys, just sit on the rocks, I'll do it from here. Fantastic. Uh, he photographs news events. This is the day when this entire column of soldiers left uh, this uh, fortress uh, to go off and fight the last remnants of the Afghan resistance. And he photographs archaeological sites as well, beautiful pictures of uh, uh, Buddhist monuments that were all smashed in the war and then the last remnants of them were destroyed by the Taliban. And this is all that we have to show that it's... Uh, that Afghanistan was one of the great Buddhist sites in the world. If you don't believe me, go to the British Life, the British Museum, and look at some of that gold hoard that's on show there. It's absolutely, absolutely outstanding. So uh, it's a com very complete record of a colonial encounter, and I think that makes him interesting. But there's something else that he does as well. If you look at Roger Fenton, all he does is pictures of like soldiers standing around their encampments, rather dry, rather stiff, and exceedingly formal and reserved. Um, uh, Google Earth. Ah, don't worry about it. Uh, what, uh, uh, but what I think is interesting, the second thing that really lifts... Uh, uh, sorry, I'm trying to be in a bit of a hurry. But uh, what really lifts Burke above, uh, above the competition is if you look at a lot of the photography that is produced in the empire, and I was born in Nigeria, and if you look at the stuff that comes out of Nigeria in the 1880s and 1890s, it is brutally hierarchical. The racial uh, superiority that is laid out in photography is absolutely enforced and is, um, is, is crushing, quite frankly. So that the pictures are really clear, you can see exactly who is in charge, who is the dominant class, who has been given the right by God to run the entire planet, and you can see who are the subjugated tribes, and who are the subjugated races, and they occupy these very clear positions. These are my servants, these are my servants, and this is me in my bath chair. Uh, at least this one's kind of funny. I think he's having some kind of pedicure done, but I mean, you know. But this, this kind of clarity in this kind of, um, uh, uh, this racial uh, layers, I think, is absolutely enforced. And if you think about these pictures in the empire being seen in India and Africa, yes, they had a purpose. But if you think about these pictures returning into the imperial heartland and being seen by the home audience, then you don't have a situation whereby photography is photographing racial hierarchy, but actually photography is actually a tool in the enforcement of that racial hierarchy. When the English audience see these things, they say, not, oh, this is how Bob lives with his servants. I know Bob, he's the district commissioner who lives down the road. But rather they say, this is the reason why we are in the empire. This, this is the reason why God places on this earth to civilize and raise up these people. If we weren't in these countries, they'd still be living in the jungles. So that idea that photography is something, a tool that enforces racial hierarchy uh, and justifies uh, and morally uh, underlines and, and, and makes it... Um, uh, justifies it from uh, happening. This is the reason why God put the Englishman on earth to civilize these races and uh, raise them up from barbarism and to Christianize them. Uh, and uh, when Burke photographs uh, these uh, Afghan tribes, uh, he doesn't do any of this. It's almost like he didn't, he wasn't at school the day that they taught racial superiority to photographers. And I think there's a very uh, interesting reason for that. Uh, and that's the reason that makes him a great photographer, I think. Uh, first of all, I think that um, John Burke is a, is a young man who is sent at the age of 12 to the colonies. Uh, there's no mention of any other family. 1856 or 57, he's sent out to India with his father who joins the British Army. 
and there's no record of any other family, so possibly the family died at the famine, or after the famine. So his father maybe joined the British Army to save his bacon. So the young boy John Burke is sent out to India, he has no formal education, he's a country boy from County Wicklow. So he was never schooled in any kind of way, never schooled in anything in the academies, in terms of aesthetics, or in terms of uh, a lot of those things about how an Englishman is meant to behave in the outside world. Everything that he learns, he learns in the empire. Uh, and so he doesn't see the great sort of paintings of Europe, but he may well have seen these, uh, these uh, sketches that were produced during the first Anglo-African War. These are James Rattray. Uh, but you can see these kind of pictures of the way the English were looking at the Holy Land in particular in the 1840s and 50s. And the real nutters of them all were the French. After the Napoleon invasion of Egypt, the French produced billions of this kind of garbage, of the way the East should be seen as Orientalist, as exotic, as... Um, luscious and lavish silks and brocades, and also the, the way that these should be seen as sexualized, the, the uh, mysterious goings-on of the harem. This is Edward Said. Yeah. So uh, I think Burke is educated in this idea of these people as not as subjugated races and like kind of monkeys out of the jungle, but on the contrary, it's something rather mysterious and exotic, uh, strange civilizations of which we can know nothing. So Burke does carry some of this. Um, the, you know, these very kind of orientalist pictures of uh, how the East should look. But one of the things that you have when, uh, when Burke arrives in um, Afghanistan is almost the beginnings of an anthropological experiment because six months later, another photographer arrives and starts shooting a lot of the same stuff. His name is Benjamin Simpson. Uh, yes, Benjamin Simpson, who arrives in the south of Afghanistan and starts photographing a lot of the same motifs, uh, group portraits of Afghan types, uh, c cityscapes, uh, archaeological monuments and the but Benjamin Simpson is a very different kind of photographer. Benjamin Simpson is an English Englishman, brought up in England, learns in England, is at school in England, attends the academy in England, attends art school in England, and then goes out to India to practice his trade. So he's a much more, more accurate mirror of empire's values of hierarchy and superiority. And someone who lives in the very core of India as well. He lives in Calcutta, right at the imperial uh, center. So Calcutta is the capital of India this time. Uh, whereas Burke is someone who's living in this dog shit little kind of uh, outpost at the very edge of the empire, Ralpindi, Peshawar, Lahore, at a time when it was surrounded on three sides by unconquered tribal wilderness. Uh, and he met this is where he was posted to, uh, where his father lived, and where his father died within two years of arriving in the empire, and where he's taken under the wing of a practicing photographer, another photographer who's quite famous, called William Baker, and Baker takes him into his business. Uh, and Baker, and uh, Burke very strategically, very quickly within two years, is married to Baker's sister. Two years later, he's got his name over the door of the company. Three years later, he owns the company. <laughs> That's the kind of guy that he is. But Burke, living very much inside this frontier bubble, whereas Benjamin Simpson is someone who comes from the imperial court, comes from England, from, comes from the public schools of England, the academies of England, the art schools of England, and into the imperial heartland. And then he arrives in Afghanistan, and when he photographs Afghans, he photographs them as dejected subjects, defeated and downtrodden, which is exactly how the English, or English audience wanted to see them. And he photographs hierarchy. If you look at this picture, you know, look at these faces. <laughs> Talk about downcast. I wouldn't want to have this on the wall in my house. It's so fucking miserable. Uh, but this is how the English wanted to see these races as, as uh, you know, uh, defeated and downcast. And if you see this picture, which is a picture of five Englishmen and two Afghans, all the Englishmen are sitting down, the Afghans are standing up, and the Englishman's doggy is sitting down as well. Right? In Englishmen, dogs, Afghans, in that order. So that idea of, Afghan, of, uh, of hierarchy is absolutely enforced. If you look at John Burke's pictures, these people don't look subjected, right? These people do not. This, this man here, 
He's not Donald Trump. On the contrary, he's looking back at you with a real kind of confidence. And he's dressed like a fitting Margarita as well. Look at the way he's wearing. Look at this, right? These people are not subjects of the British Empire. On the contrary, they look back straight at the camera with real kind of confidence. Uh, and, uh, and I think even Burke's photographic style is different. Whereas I think Benjamin Simpson goes into the marketplace and says, you, 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 stand there and we'll take your picture. And these people go, oh my God, what's going to happen? They don't know what the photographic process is. They're about to be shot. And so they look at the camera like they're about to be shot. Whereas I think what Burke does, uh, and interestingly in a lot of his photography, uh, you see this same wall reappear, but it's got a crack in it. Uh, so he seems to have a place where he does his pictures. So I think what he does is he gives out slots. Can you come at 3 o'clock on Thursday? Can you come at 2 o'clock on Thursday? And you come on Wednesday morning, and I'll do your pictures. So no one comes back unless they want to be photographed. And no one comes back unless they've gone home and put on their best stuff. Look at this guy, right? He looks like a prince. So there's something more collaborative is taking place, but also these people are actually choosing to be photographed in the way that they want to, in their best outfits. And so they look back at the camera with a real confidence. Does this boat look like he's subjected and dominated? On the contrary, it looks rather sneaky and saucy, if you ask me. Uh, and that's how these people look back at these pictures with uh, some kind of pride. Does it look like a dominated race? On the contrary. So that's the difference between uh, Burke's pictures. And the reason why I think he does this is because Burke is an Irishman, a Catholic, and a tradesman. And the English look down their noses for all three reasons. But combining one person, <laughs> uh, I think probably tradesmen was probably the worst of all those. But you have to remember that in the British Empire, these racial hierarchies were enforced even more thoroughly than they were back at home. And uh, as a Catholic and an Irishman, Bert wouldn't have even lived in the centre of the British cantonments. He would have lived at the, uh, the cantonments' peripheries, cheek by jowl with um, uh, the uh, uh, educated English-speaking Indians, mostly through the British Army or the civil service perhaps. And the, those incidences where you get uh, uh, racial mixing, the Anglo-Indians, uh, would not be some lord aristoc aristocrat officer would start shagging his servants. On the contrary, it would be at the very edges, the blurred edges of the cantonments, where you would get those Englishmen that weren't even entirely Englishmen, Irishmen and Catholics, would be marrying those, those Indians that weren't really entirely Indians either. Very English-speaking, very English-looking, Anglophile Indians that uh, came out of the British, British Army, non-commissioned officers in the army, or middle-ranking middle bureaucrats in the English civil service. So, uh, for example, uh, so you know, because Burke doesn't share any of these values of the English, he doesn't photograph it. So when he photographs an Englishman, there's an Englishman in his picture. It's almost quite hard to find him. It's almost quite hard to find him. It's not a picture of a guy sat at the front with all his little servanty poos in front of him. On the contrary, it's quite hard to pick out which one is the Englishman. Uh, who was uh, who was um, his spotting? So he looks photoshopped. I'll tell you why he looks photoshopped. Him. Very very interesting thing to say, and I'll tell you exactly why. Um, one of the things that Burke is doing when he photographs is that um, the, the film that he's using at this time is a wet collodion process. So he's shooting on a wet negative that he has to coat with chemistry in a dark tent, put it inside a slide, put it inside the camera, take a picture, get it out, and get the chemical off within about 10 minutes or so. Because if it dries, it cracks and it destroys the negative. So he's working with this very quick process. And you can see that in those, uh, those sketches even with this big camera. One of the characteristics of that film is that it only records a picture from the red end of the spectrum. Any blue light doesn't make any kind of image on the negative. So if you see a picture with a blue sky and clouds, it just, it's just a blank white sky. Blue doesn't appear in the picture at all. It's only in the 1910s that, uh, George, uh, that uh, George Eastman, 
said that the Kogan Company invents a panchromatic film that records all of the, all of the spectrum. This film only works from the red end of the spectrum. So anybody that has any red pigment in their skin, uh, it records very, very dark. Afghans have a lot of red pigment in their skin, and it records very dark. You look at these guys, they look black. They look like Africans, but they're not that dark. It's something, it's a quality of the film. And anybody English, who doesn't, the English on the whole, you know, white Englishmen, like they don't have a lot of white, uh, red pigment in our skins. And so the skin appears almost waxy, almost like it's lit from inside. The reason why he looks photoshopped in is because he looks like he's, he's being lit from the inside, like a bull. Uh, and also he's being, uh, because he's in the shadow, there's only blue light is falling on his skin. It's just the way that the sky works. And so he, he, uh, he looks very, very angelic, whereas the uh, Afghans look like wizens, warlike tribesmen from the mountains. And these imperial photographers were conscious of the fact that this, did, that this film did this. And so when they did these mixed group portraits, which they were very fond of, they knew that it emphasized racial differences. And it showed these kind of lily-skinned sons of the empire, and it showed these, these tribal kind of wizened hillmen that look like their skin's made out of old briefcases. Look at this guy, right? Afghans just don't, don't look like that. Um, so that, that idea of that kind of skin difference is something that's very important. You know, it's not something we do nowadays, of course. We've gone beyond that. But uh, that, uh, that kind of racial difference is very important uh, in these photographers. And when I photograph the portraits, if you go and see them at Tate, there's a whole room full of portraits. So if you have a look at these books here, or even better, buy one of these books, because Tristan brought them all this way, uh, is um, uh, I tried to mimic this in the photography. So when I did these group portraits, I shoot them on a digital camera that produces a full curve, but I dumped all of the red, yellow, and green uh, light information. And I just took the blue light, transferred that into black and white, and then printed the portraits. So in the portraits that, I, that even I'm shooting, the same as both, you see this accentuated racial difference when you've got an American military officer with uh, five Afghan helicopter pilots. The, 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 the military officers look like they're uh, angelic, uh, waxy almost. Uh, and the Afghans look very dark and very wizened, because I wanted to kind of copy that idea of that. Uh, skin difference. So you, I mean, you bang on the money. Uh, yeah. Do I get a prize or something? Uh, yeah. Uh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right. So, uh, so um, uh, the, 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 that's the, that's the first thing that I'd say about the, the kind of the photographic technique that I use to try and uh, carry this idea of birth. And then the second thing, and this is the final thing I talk about, is that. Um, uh, when I photographed the work in 2001, I, I got out of bed at 5 o'clock in the morning because I wanted to bathe these pictures with this kind of golden light. This, is this the beginning of a, uh, is this a question mark, the beginning of the first days of empire or the twilight of its final hours? And so I deliberately chose this kind of light to photograph. This is in Bellingham. This is actually the entrance to a local commander's uh, headquarters, but uh, they made these kind of bullshit um, victory arches to celebrate their victory of the Taliban. This is where one of the Buddhas was uh, at Bellingham. So I, mean, I deliberately bathed everything in this golden light. It's kind of subconscious, to be honest. I, mean, I don't really think, uh, I don't ever see anything that I do as being um, redemptive. I, mean, I don't feel redemptive about it, but in a, in a subconscious way, this work came out as quite redemptive. Somehow, the possibility that something new could be born, that something could come out of this ashes, uh, that something would uh, step onto the stage, that actually it was a new period in Afghanistan's history. I was sadly very wrong about that. Uh, and so I kind of deliberately bathed all of these pictures. This is a, the western side of Kabul, the sort of middle class district of Kabul uh, that was uh, wrecked in the fighting in the 1990s. But it's bathed in this kind of golden light because I'm deliberately quoting from all those painters uh, that, uh, that paint the ideas of romantic philosophy, and Claude Lorraine and Nicolas Poussin, Caspar Friedrich, who are trying to find uh, doing paintings of, of the Italian countryside with all of these Roman ruins in these pictures. 
disappearing into the ivy, you know, just emerging from the undergrowth. Because what they're saying through those paintings is the greatest empires that have ever existed, the empires of Rome and Greece, all of these things disappear into the ivy one day. And nothing really lasts, nothing is permanent. Uh, vanitatis, vanitatis, vanitatum, omnia vanitatis. In the greatest things that men ever produce, disappear eventually into the undergrowth. Nothing is permanent in this world. The things that men do are all vanities, they're all uh, temporary. Uh, and in this time, when I was in Afghanistan, my, I, I'm trying to find a vehicle to photograph my sense of disappointment, my sense of bitterness about what has happened in this course of these ten sorry years where my country has gambled its uh, political reputation, the blood of uh, 342 of its boys, the blood of 30,000 Afghans, more importantly, uh, $420 billion has been spent by the Americans. Look at a website called costofwar.org and watch the numbers spin around. Something like $420 billion at the moment. Uh, and so I resorted to a kind of pre-dawn light and a post-sunset light uh, because I wanted to kind of bathe these pictures in uh, some kind of wrapped around uh, uh, a melancholy of a kind. And so I did everything that I did in that period uh, wrapped in this, I had to get out of bed even earlier, <laughs> to get out this pre-dawn light and this post-sunset light. Uh, to capture something about this way that this country has been uh, shafted by my country, uh, shafted by all of that hope that was embodied and um, let down by me too because I kind of took my eye off the ball in 2001 because I thought this place was uh, going to knock itself down, brush itself up and come on to something else and I was very wrong about that. So uh, that's how I photographed it. So I, it's a little bit difficult to talk about because I'm not showing you the pictures themselves. Please go across the river, have a look in Tate Modern or buy a copy of the book and see whether you think I've succeeded in that. But that's what I've done so far. Okay? Happy? Good? Good. Thanks very much. Right. Why don't we go straight to the part that you were talking about and um, now let's see if I go at five here, then we get the yeah, then we're back there. Okay, let's just go there. Yeah. So same picture, right? Yep. And I, I just got interested in, in this um, you know, this process, this this collodion story where you know, get the red domes and, and so you get this kind of um, image of um, of the Afghans that was very different from the English and you see that this sort of same technique is being used here to you know convey a message in a way in the OJ Simpson trial, right? And there is also the story of Margaret Thatcher. This is actually part of a bigger picture and you see everybody sort of with normal skin tones and, and Thatcher somehow was always extremely pale. And I think this was not her brightest hour or something and that's why it's so effective to have her you know be completely pale. And that's that's how she comes out apparently. Um, when photographs are being made of her. Um, now, I, what, what I thought was kind of interesting is that, I mean, it seems that, you know, you can use particular photographic techniques such that, you know, the Afghans and the British look very different. Um, maybe you use some filters and so on in order to have... Um, Margaret Thatcher come out like that, and uh, that's all perfectly fine. But then if you say, no, suppose that, no, I'm just shooting the picture as it is, and then I'm photoshopping it afterwards, right? Then people get very nervous about this, and they say, oh, you're manipulating images, it's terrible, it's terrible, right? 
So this apparently the National Geographic got in trouble for this. I mean, this is not a color issue, but it's just sort of you know making your pyramids fit into this vertical format. And, uh, and a lot of people didn't like that. They said that's cheating, right? But people have different opinions about this. Like you're sort of a pro and con, right? Rick Smallman says, we're very proud of the fact that we're able to use this technology to make the covers more dramatic and more impressive. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, manipulating images is ethically, morally, and journalistically horrible. Manipulating images is like limited nuclear warfare, they're ink numb. Right? <laughs> and so I just sort of, you know, find yeah, this reaction in, in, yeah, I find this kind of an interesting issue. This, you know, what are you allowed to do? I mean, there seems to be something arbitrary about we can put on a filter, so let's just do the Margaret Thatcher thing, so that she looks very pale and always really effective. You know, you're going to get this message like this is not her brightest hour and so on. But if you were to do that in Photoshop, oh, it's terrible, it's terrible, right? And, and, and then there was also the issue sort of what can you do with analog and what can you do with digital photography? I wonder whether you have any, any opinions about this and, you know, whether in your own work you feel like here are certain things that I would never do. Hmm. Or here are things that I feel are perfectly fine. Here's what I do do with Photoshop, and I would, you know, and so on. So. Um, uh, well, for me, the limits uh, are a few things that have come through uh, some of the work that I've done. Um, the, the most important client that I have is the New York Times magazine. And most of what goes on a gallery wall starts out as editorial assignments. And the best person that I've worked for for the last 10 years is the New York Times. And the New York Times has some very, very rigorous uh, strictures about manipulation. In fact, they're the only magazine I've ever worked for that have ever told me what is and is not allowed. The rest of it is all done on some rather vague sort of gentleman's agreement that's never written down, and you only find out about it when you violate it and get kebabbed. <laughs> um, so the, the New York Times is the only magazine that ever told me what they say is acceptable and what is not. Uh, it's the only magazine they've ever put pressure on me to say, have you done anything to this picture? Because if you have, we will have to refer to it as a photo illustration. So they're the sort of like um, Photoshop Nazis, really. And I, and I sort of take them as a kind of gold standard. I see. Uh, so what do they say? Um, uh, they've asked me, I, I know that there's a photographer called um, Edgar Martins, an English photographer, is, I think he's based in the UK who last year produced a series of pictures for them about uh, foreclosed homes in the United States. Uh, and it turned out that he had done a lot of manipulation on these. I mean, taking pictures of the elements of the pictures and flipping them and creating very symmetrical pictures uh, by actually duping half and half and sticking them together. Uh, cloning out elements, removing elements, uh, bringing things in from other pictures. A very heavy Photoshop mm -hmm. work. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, he passed them off as real pictures. Uh, and there was a huge stink at the times, and we were all informed that there had been a huge stink. And if any of us ever went near it ever again, we'd all be knackered. So um, uh, it's it, it's never it's never given out as a series of formal rules, but we're all made very aware of those people that violate the rules. Mm -hmm. uh, certain award winners who then have the awards removed from them. It's been a whole series of uh, photo award winners that have lost their prizes, and in particular the World Press Photo, which is the kind of gold standard that all the photojournalists aspire towards. Uh, have over the last couple of years removed the prize from people that they say have over manipulated images. I see. Take yeah. a picture from yeah. the uh, Haiti earthquake. Yeah. But, but that would be kind of a case. I actually have a, an example here that sort of illustrates it, right? This is, this is uh, Rhonda as the first world failed to third. Corpses lying the streets of Goma in Zaire as an airplane prepares to land. It's like, we're too late, right? Look, the airplane is coming in now. 
but the corpses are already there. And you know, when looking at this thing, I'm sort of thinking like, well, you know, suppose you did a superposition here. I mean, how bad would it be, really? I mean, do you really have to sit there all day when you have the idea to do this in order to get the airplane at the right spot and just, you know, do a superposition and that's that? You got a good idea. What the heck, you know? I mean. Uh, but but that, that's sort of the case where the New York Times would say, if you did a superposition on this, you'd be in big trouble, oh. right? Right? <laughs> but there's something funny about it. I mean, it's really, you know, having the idea of, of, of having this airplane that's too late when the corpses are there, what that it's all about, right? I mean, sitting there in order to wait and get the right shot. I mean, what's the big deal about that, in a way? But, but that's one thing. I mean, I can see people get upset about this. But then there was the other thing, too, of, you know, coloring things in working with, you know, shades of light. I mean, you get this despair in your pictures, you know, getting the blue stuff in. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, just getting the blue in in your pictures. I mean, do you feel like that's okay? Well, um, I, didn't, I didn't paint blue in. I got out of bed at four in the freaking morning. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very okay. Right, right, right. Um, no, but there is probably, you know, this, this For me, I, I, use I, filters I draw the line into uh, cloning objects. If I, if I mm. think I need to, like, move a tree out of the way, then that's too much. If I feel like, I mean, <coughs> I crop my pictures, uh, I will do color adjustments to the pictures within reason, not very right. much saturation adjustments, because those are something that are endemic in the way that the picture is captured by the sensor and the camera or by right. the film. So uh, to me, those feel uh, natural enough. Uh, and I'll do contrast adjustments as well. Um, for me, I take it all from printing. I was a very good black and white printer uh, back in the day. Uh, and so I sort of take it as a rule that if it's the kind of thing that I could have done as a black and white printer in analog, then it's acceptable for me as a photojournalist. Uh, if I couldn't have done it as analog, then I don't do it, even though I can do it, I don't do it. Right, right. Uh, and, that's, and that's kind of carried through. And that's sort of the time, the New York Times is, that's also the kind of distillation of what they say as well. If you could have done it then, you can do it now in a colour, but if you couldn't have done it then, don't do it, even though you can do it technologically. Right. Which is right. A, kind of nonsense, really, but you have to think that you have to make a line somewhere, so yeah. why not make it there? Yeah. So yeah. it's got to be something. Yeah, that, I mean, the New York Times would run, would run your fake picture, but they would just refer to it as a photo illustration. Exactly. Yeah. Which is fine, I think, as well. Mm -hmm. But it's to do with an expectation as well, an expectation of truthfulness, an expectation of record, uh, and those things. And because the New York Times has this rather ridiculous idea that it's some kind of newspaper of record and a, an established line of fact, therefore it has to produce photographs which are also that. Yeah. And, and you know, obviously the record of the New York Times through the pathetic way that it backs the war against Saddam and the Patriot Act and the, uh, the Judith Miller thing uh, shows that it isn't anything but those things. Uh -huh. uh, and it's, you know, when I read the New York Times, to me it sounds like the voice of the State Department, <coughs> but they think of themselves as being some kind of official record, and so the photography has to be that too. Yeah. But it's interesting that you know, the standard of truthfulness is set by how much could I cheat with analogue? Yeah. Right? I mean, yeah. this, is a, this is a funny way of putting it, really. <laughs> Shall we maybe open it up to the audience? Yeah. Maybe restrict it up to this point, and then you know we can bring in some other points later. Yes, Patrick. Um, you don't call yourself a photojournalist, so, so I'm wondering if you think of truth as having a different threshold for you versus you know. I mean, what what is true? I mean, I can imagine there are truths which aren't just real. I mean, adding color might actually make for some deeper truth if you just really shot the straight photo and you've got white color exactly the same. But I mean, I mean can, do you have a line that's somewhat further away than photojournalism? Does it give you a freedom that you wouldn't have if you were a photojournalist? Um, I believe it gives me a truth to be partial. 
that, and that's the thing that, uh, you know, the reason why I say I'm not a photojournalist is because uh, I think I'm a propagandist. Right. Uh, and my first desire is to make political points. I'm not particularly interested in recording the truth or whatever of the situation. I will use truthfulness in a photograph to, to talk that situation because I believe that you will interrogate my picture longer if you believe that it is true. And I believe that by having a, by, by not being known as a shyster that fiddles around in my pictures, then I believe that gives me uh, more justification to sit at the table. Uh, but that's, that's where it ends. And the things that I choose to photograph and the stories that I choose to tell are exceedingly partial and political. And if they're not, I feel, I feel that they've failed. But I don't think the best way to talk to you about politics is to tell you a lot of lies. Uh, and likewise, I don't think the best way to talk to you about politics is to shout at you either. The best way to talk to you about politics is to make my pictures as beautiful as possible. And for me, beauty is a tool of drawing you into a kind of dialogue with me because I believe that by making the pictures beautiful, you will sit and look at them longer. Sit, sit with me and look at them for longer. And you will squint at them harder. And you will ask harder questions on them. You know, the problem with a pitch like this is that you sort of bounce off its meaning rather quickly. I'm not down on photojournalism. I think that photojournalistic pictures do their, do their job very, very well. It's the same as the text that sits alongside them. If the, if the text in a magazine article was written as a haiku, you would sit squinting at it for hours and then trying to work out what the hell it meant. So the, the, the way that text is written in a, in, a, in, a, in a newspaper is meant to offer all of its meanings instantly. Its, it's meanings are completely transparent. It's not about truth and, and, and lack of truth, but rather it's about transparency for me. And that the reason why it's punctuated, the reason why it has capitalism in the right place, is so that I can move through it as fast as possible to its, to its meaning, the meaning that's behind it. And if, the, if, your, if your newspaper was written iambic pentameter, you just get annoyed by it. And likewise, the same is true of photojournalism. That a picture like this offers up everything that it has to say instantly. I know exactly where I am. I know what that thing in the sky is. I know what the semiotic meaning of these things with the covers over on the floor is. This is a series of pictures in Africa. These are people that have been killed in some kind of massacre the way they lay down. And this is the West arriving or leaving on an airplane. All its meanings are completely transparent and are given to you immediately so that you can move past its, its symbols to the meanings behind those symbols immediately, just as the text exercises things. Mm -hmm. Now, the problem with that, I find, is that, that is, um, it's, a, it's, a very, it's a great way to talk about some very simple stories. It's a bloody awful way to talk about stories with any kind of sophistication or meaning behind them. Anything that you struggle with where the meanings are slightly more complicated or my position towards them is slightly more compromised or challenged or troubled, I, I can't use this tool. I used to be a photojournalist. It's a great way to talk about black and white issues. Here's the good guys, here's the bad guys. Here's the man in the street with the banana, in the street, pointing where he fell over the banana, in the street, looking cross because he tripped over the banana and he fell over and he hang your man. You know, local newspaper photographers like that all the time, yeah? Mm -hmm. uh, whereas the, when I started to engage with uh, particular issues about genocide, the first book that I did, I felt that my, it was like trying to play, you know, right man enough wearing boxing gloves. It's just the wrong tools for the job. Let's go to the next question, yeah. Your raising of the question of text is quite interesting because actually it seems to me that the, we tolerate a much wider range of uses of the word journalist than we do the word photojournalist. So journalists can cover everything from a giving lots of colour background history correspondent through to this man trips over a banana. And I'm, I'm quite struck by the fact that, and I haven't really thought about it before, that actually we don't allow photographers anything like the same leeway in that, that we demand these particular things. And 
Um, I mean, the Martins case is an interesting, and incidentally he's denied it actually, that he was ever given that brief. There's a quite an interesting issue in the latest issue of AG magazine where he shows the sequence of photographs and talks about his relationship with the MIT. I think he's been disingenuous, to put it mildly, actually. I mean, I think that there's a lot more went on than he claims. Mm. But I think the point about transparency is in text, most of us know and can read and interpret texts in a different kind of way that we would understand, say, how you as a photographer had achieved a particular impact. We're more alert about it's the language that most people work in most of the time. They understand the vocabularies, they understand working methods because they do it themselves. Perhaps a number of people in this room uh, are like me and, and Patrick, also interested in photography and do quite a lot of photography ourselves. To us, we can begin to decode that. It's actually much harder, I think. So the obligation of transparency in an ethical sense on a photographer, and perhaps that's why we have the difference between journalism, photojournalism, and how, I'm just wondering how at a philosophical level, one gets that transparency without the photojournalist also having to write a socking great screed saying, this is how I did this, which might become a bit, a bit dull. Well, I mean, don't they write that screed? But they, don't, they just don't have to write that screed in that we come with a series of expectations. That that's what I think that's my question. The rules are written by, when it says Reuters, we know what we unpack the meaning of that word that says it's Reuters, therefore it really happened, uh, with the, with the, the raw file is available to the editors, uh, uh, they promised that they didn't do it, uh, there was that time when they did have that fellow did that photoshopping thing and he got really screwed for it, so they, this fellow probably hasn't done it this time, and so we, we, we do write that text, but we just don't have to write the text down. So. But do you write the text which said, at this point I use a particular focal length lens which allowed me to suggest a juxtaposition between two people who weren't actually in any sense talking to one another but because yeah. I was standing half a mile away yeah. I was able to make that distance of 50 feet look like 5 inches. Uh, well we have, I think you've got the Kevin Carter picture here haven't you? Yeah, yeah. I oh, want the, um, which, uh, which uh, the bird, exact, which did exactly the culture and the, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think, I mean that, that's an interesting picture because that raised a lot of other ethical questions. Yeah, but well. this particular foreshortening that was done with this very long lens yeah. uh, brought together two objects. And yet that would pass the MIT yeah. rules. Yeah. I now, think, would I, that I think Carter was working for the New York Times. I was yeah. mm -hmm. Would that unpacking you're talking about, the things that we bring to it, work in that case? And I'm not actually sure they would. <laughs> Is there an answer to that? Um, I don't know. I just I'm, well, yeah, you can tell wrong. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, this this picture has caused a kicked up a shitstorm of a completely different kind. Exactly. It's just the point here about that bird was sitting a heck of a lot further away from that kid than what it looks like, right? I mean, that's what we're talking about. You can use it to suggest now. In mm -hmm. perhaps in, in, in Is it, it? I don't know whether it's like um, uh, you know an illegal mover or a sleight of hand. I would put this in the sleight of hand category. I know. I think that's slightly different. I think it's 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 iffy, but it's not criminal. Well, it's it interesting, right? Because we talked about that earlier. If you had actually like manually moved that child yeah. towards that, the that river, then that would be that's wrong, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, I'd how do we draw that line? Yeah, how do you draw a line? Is it is it cast iron and, and the rest of it? Yeah. Yeah. around. He sits there for a long time too because he really would like to have the vulture spread its wings and he doesn't, bit, and he doesn't get it, it right? Time yeah, now of course if he would have you know, made some movement to make the vulture spread its wings, that wouldn't be any good again, right? So we've done this manipulating the, 
and what he's actually uh, making picture of. Yeah. Maybe maybe I should um, move on to this question I had about um, about um, sort of the issues of you know making a career out of depicting war scenes and you know suffering of other people and stuff like that. And and you know you could sort of say well in a way you're exploiting the suffering of other people, right? And and, and I listen to your radio interview and you say. You know, I did very well out of Afghanistan, and now the question is, you know, when I look at how well I did, don't I have a responsibility, and what's the nature of that responsibility, and so on? And I think here com also comes the issue of I'm not a photojournalist anymore, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, so here are a couple of pictures by photojournalists that got them, you know, got made them raise precisely these questions. So here's Larry Burroughs, you know, skilled in Vietnam. He says, it's not easy to photograph a man dying in the arms of his fellow countrymen. Was I simply capitalizing on other men's grief? I mean, that's the question. You know, that's sort of what's behind what you're saying too, when you say, you know, I did well out of Afghanistan, and you know, what's my responsibility now? So Larry Burr said, I concluded that what I was doing would penetrate the hearts of those at home who are simply too indifferent. I felt that I was free to act on that condition. So he feels like that's what gives him a a license. Um, other example here is, you know, the, the Kevin Carter, uh, Sudan, 1993. Um, so this picture, you know, kicked up a storm, but people said, great picture, great picture. But then they said, what happened to the girl, right? What happened to the girl? And, and Carter responded, well, you know, didn't do anything, right? Well, shouldn't we have brought her to the feeding stage? What actually was happening here was that, you know, there's this airplane coming in, and her parents are going to the feeding station. Right, that's, you know, the airplane is just bring food, right? Um, and that's where her parents are, and they leave her somewhat behind, and that's when the vulture comes down. Um, and shouldn't you have brought her to the feeding station and so on? And Kevin Carter responds like, look, you know, if you care about little girls like that, there's a lot of places where you can donate money to help little girls like that, so leave me alone, all right? I think about three months later, he commits suicide. So now it's not, you know, clear at all that it's connected to his experience in Saddam, right? But there's all this discussion about, you know, the bird and the girl here. Another one that kicked up a storm like that, and all sort of about, you know, responsibility that people have because of the fact that they are um, making pictures of human suffering. So here's the migrant mother, 1936, in Oklahoma or somewhere, Dorothea Langs. And, and so many years later, they find the woman who is actually depicted in this famous picture, and she's not happy at all. So she's Florence <coughs> Owens Thompson, and she said she felt exploited by Langs' portrait. I can't get a penny out of it, she says. Lang didn't ask my name. She said she wouldn't sell the, picture, the pictures. She said she'd send me a copy. She never did, right? So, you know, so same issue here. And then I was thinking, like, well, maybe one of the responsibilities that one has, or, you know, at least one has this responsibility, that is that you somehow, you know, respect the dignity of the people involved, right? Um, and, and, and this particular account here seems to be a violation of the dignity of the person involved. And then I was just wondering, and you know, just an idea. But when I look at your pictures, and also what you say about Burke, you know, just the fact that he, he doesn't shoot the corpses after the battle and so on, right? And when I look at at, um, at your work, um, 
I mean, I was struck by this picture in, um, in for most of it, I have no words, you know, it was all on, on genocide, right? So these are, these are the steps in, in Auschwitz, right? And, and, and so I guess, you know, the idea is that you see that, you know, that lots and lots and lots of people have gone up those steps, right? And, and that's sort of the inference that you make, and that's what brings you to, you know, the, the, the massiveness of the atrocity of um, the genocide in, in, in World War II. And, but again, of course, you know, there's no blood and gore in this, right? There's no, there's no violation of anybody's dignity in this. Yeah? Um, and so maybe that's a, a form of, of, of um, taking responsibility as an artist in this case, rather than as a photojournalist. So, so I'm sort of wondering whether you, know, you move from photojournalism to being an artist has something to do with, you know, well, I need to take a responsibility you know, in, in telling the story that I want to tell. And I feel like I can't do that fully as a photojournalist. Maybe because people out there want to see the blood I go on. Yeah. So anyway, just something to play with. Well, um, I remember, um, Simon's boring war stories. Um, I remember <laughs> I, was in, uh, I was in Congo. I was in DRC, I was in Goma. And I was photographing for uh, CRS, which is uh, CAFOD, the Catholic Relief Services. And they asked me if I would photograph a small refugee camp that had been kicked up from a lesser conflict, one of many little mini-conflicts. And there was about a couple of thousand um, of these Maui Maui people that were living in a, a refugee camp. Uh, and I photographed for a couple of hours in this place, and it was a pretty sad old desperate place. And I photographed those kind of regular pictures that I thought uh, this organization wanted. This is when I was a photojournalist. And, um, and I, I, was, I was making some pretty good pictures and I was pretty pleased with myself. And in the middle of all of this, uh, a guy walks towards me and says, hello, in English. And he says, um, are you English? And I said, yeah. And he says, oh, I'm from Leicester. And I was like, going on. And he said, oh, I'm at Leicester University, I'm doing metallurgy. And I heard that my family were in a pickle, and uh, I came out here to see if I could help him. And it was like a kind of collapsing, because suddenly this thing that was, these people were being great, because they looked great, they looked miserable, and they looked the part. And suddenly this man had come from this out, stepped out of this crowd and had completely destroyed everything that I was enjoying photographically in this mm -hmm. place. Because suddenly they weren't this type, this kind of metaphor of misery and suffering. Suddenly it had a name. It was called Richard. It lived in Leicester. It was this Leicester University and it was doing metallurgy. And I sort of couldn't take any more pictures after that. Then Richard kind of like ruined it for me. <laughs> uh, and the whole thing just kind of like dissolved in front of me. And I found it a very, very disturbing moment because these people had been doing all the right things by looking miserable, huddling over their fires, the smoke was hanging over this thing, the landscape was extraordinary, and these little blondes that they bend, bended over sticks with a bit of plastic that they were living in were, you know, was, it was making great photographs, and suddenly all of that great photography uh, dissolved uh, when Richard stepped out of the crowd. And then I, I remember the next day uh, at home making the notes up, that evening making up the notes, and realizing that I hadn't written down anybody's name. I hadn't written any names. They were just Maui Maui refugees living at this location because of the following reasons, because of the conflict. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I'd never written down this lady's name or that man's name or this little boy's name because, uh, frankly, I wasn't interested in the names. 
Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking about the work of a photographer called Fazl Sheikh, who does very similar kind of photography, but in Fazl Sheikh's pictures it says, Mr. Olakan Wali and his daughter Susan and his sister Mary, and he's here because of this, and he used to live in this place, and then this guy is here. Which is a completely different attitude to it. And I was a bit kind of like disgusted, really. Uh, and that was one of the things that sort of made me, um, uh, one of the kind of damascene moments, really, in terms of turning away from photojournalism to, to try to find something else uh, where I could actually engage with these people, not in a liberal way, I'm not a liberal, not in the idea of like, you know, that I would write down this man's story, you know, what would, what would tell the story of this man's mm -hmm. life? 50 words? 500 words? 1,000 words? You know, Jean-Paul Sartre's biography of Proust, what was it? You know, it became 10,000 pages before he gave up with it because he couldn't tell the total story of this man's life. Um, but, um, uh, well, second boring anecdote. Um, I was in Rwanda shooting this book and uh, I volunteered a couple of days with uh, an organization called African Rights who go around gathering first-person testimony of people who survived the genocide. And so they go around and they write down every single thing that happened to this lady, she does what she and need little headshots. So I was just going around doing little headshots of these people to go on these reports. And I volunteered a couple of days to go around the country with these people to shoot the headshots. And uh, my French, you know, I'm English, right? So my French is rubbish. And uh, uh, we went to see this lady, and she had all these little kids. So I thought, oh, I'll do a picture with the little kids. So I lined her up, lady, and, and the kids went, boo, 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 boo. I thought it was a bit funny, because it looked like the fun trap family scenes, you know. So I lined them all up in sequence like that, and it was like a nice picture outside the little house. And I do, 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 do. It's about six of these kids. And uh, it, oh, in, in Rwanda, everybody has uh, these beautiful French religious names, like Teofile, Immaculata, and Annunciata, and things. And then they have a Kinyawanda name afterwards. So everybody I met had these amazing, glorious, Names like that, some you know, they're all Annunciata and Immaculata and stuff like this. And um, I line these people up, and the lady steps out of the picture, picks up the little baby, and puts the baby inside the house, and then comes back and stands in the picture. And I was like, no, no, I've let the baby, I've the baby. And she's like, no. I'm like, what's the matter? Put the baby in the picture, it was the funniest part, right? And she says, no, not with the baby. And I'm saying, no, no, what's going on, what's going on? And she's talking to the trans to the, to the thing in Kinyawanda, and I don't know what's going on. And she's saying, and I, I'm like, what's going on? We seem to be back where we started from. And she's saying, no, no, just with Violet. And I'm like, bonjour, Violet, just with Simon. Can I have the baby in the picture, please? And she said, no, no, just with Violet. And I'm like, hang on, isn't it Jean-Belle Violet? Uh, oh, I see. She's saying I was raped. The baby is the product of the rape. And when you photograph me with my family, I don't want that baby in the picture. Because I don't consider that baby to be my partner, family. quite frankly, it's by the grace of God, and throw the fucking thing in the lake when it was born. Uh, and the, the feeling that I had, like, through my incompetence and stupidity, had, like, taken a kind of stick and just rubbed it in this woman's wound, in her pain, yeah. it truly appalled me, but also gave me this feeling that, um, why am I there? You know, that second part of that Larry Burroughs quote. What, why are you there? What are you going to do with these pictures? Am I going to take these pictures and then put them under the box under my bed? Is that justifying me sticking a knife in this woman's wound? Yeah. Or am I going to take these pictures and win a big prize? Is that justifying me sticking a, put, putting a stick in this lady's wound? Yeah. Or am I going to take these pictures and uh, uh, you know advance my career? Does that justify it? Or do I believe that somehow 
by showing this picture of this lady, it will do something towards making a world in which a lady in that circumstance, at some point in the future, won't go through what this lady went through. So for me, that was the thing that sort of made my work, uh, made me feel uh, political about what I do, because I feel that unless, unless it has at least a hope of doing that thing, that what the fuck am I sticking around annoying this lady for? Why don't I just leave her alone? You know, if, I, if, I, if I'm not going to do something useful, and I don't know how you define that, but if I'm not going to do something useful in terms of changing the world, and Larry Burroughs says it was about busting his way through the indifference of the viewers that see this picture, if I'm not going to do something useful with that thing, then I am just a tourist through someone else's reality. Because I've got a white skin, and a British passport, and a credit card, and a home plane ticket. And when it all gets too horrible for me, and I miss my wife, I just go home. And she can't go home. She can't get, she doesn't have any of those things. But one thing that I do have by virtue of that credit card and that passport is that I have voice. She hasn't got no voice. No one gives a crap what happened to her or her stories. But people want to pay money to hear me talk about what I do. People want to go in a gallery and see what I stick on the wall. So it seems to me that, you know, from that day forward, I never use the phrase take, take a photograph. I make a photograph. Because for me, it feels like when you take a picture of somebody, it's a two-way obligation that you set up. It's a two-way obligation. She lets me take a picture, and I promise I will do something with this thing. I will try and make something different in the world. Uh, otherwise, there is no justification for me being here, making her world a little bit more crap by asking her to repeat her story for the 15th time. Yeah, yeah. So that, and, and I'm not a Christian, but I do think in this, yeah, the only language that I have to describe this is in this Christian idea of witness. That you stand in front of something and then promise to repeat that elsewhere to change the world. Otherwise, you're not justified being there. Yeah. It's that picture I showed you of uh, Salvatore Ras. If you've got nothing to say, shut the fuck up. But isn't that what you were doing there in the first place? On, on those days? Yeah. Yes, because it was very direct those days because I was working for this organization. But the rest of my time there was doing this live dark book. So either you make the live dark book count for something or don't do it. So does that mean there's no place for photojournalists? Um, there is some place for them if they feel they are doing something in terms of creating a record. And there is some place for them if they honestly believe, like Larry Burroughs, they are burrowing through indifference. Although, you know, you didn't read one of the words on that picture that you had up, which is in the bottom right hand corner, it said Life Magazine. And I would say Life Magazine is a, you know, is a mouthpiece for the American government and its policy. And that was the problem with that picture, is it appeared in Life Magazine. Um, and it didn't have a political effect, you know, because you have to take on board the political baggage that comes with being a part of the American media. If I take my pictures and then give them to Rupert Murdoch, then they will have Rupert Murdoch's meanings attached to them, not my pictures, not my meanings. So um, uh, that, that whole idea of where do, what does the picture do afterwards is important to me. Where does it appear? What does it say? What does it mean? What do the audience think? Should it have some kind of disclaimer saying, I'm on assignment, I'm just doing what I'm told to do? Or my picture is I was only obeying orders. Yeah. I don't think that gets you, gets you off in But Simon, suppose somebody would say, look, you know, suppose somebody is really one of these blood and gore photographers right, and says, I think my pictures do a lot. They get in places like Life magazine where a lot of people see them. And I think it does make a difference. Does it? What? Well, I don't know. What? I don't know. I mean, so I'd ask them to say, well, tell me what difference it makes. I don't know. Yeah. 
Well, well look, I mean, suppose that an opponent of you would say, I mean, you know, somebody who's precisely doing that would say, well, but, you know, your pictures are very, very intellectual, they're very subtle, you know, and they reach a small audience because they are precisely so subtle. And, you know, how much would it really move them to, you know, to donate to causes and things like that, to be politically, become politically active? I think my blood and gore pictures actually do more in shaking people and making them politically active, donating to good causes, volunteering, and so on. Now, I don't know, it could be false. But it's not plainly. I know, I know photographers like Gilles Perez would, would, would come, go along exactly what you're saying. And the, the British photographer Tom Stoddard, I think, as well, you know, see, yeah. where a picture appears and then it's an time to run a campaign and the campaign raises some money and he can say, that picture raised yeah. 43,000 quid for that. Yeah. Yeah. But it's still, of course, it's a, the, the, you know, the violation of the dignity of the person who's depicted, right? Yeah, you, know, you made a lot of money with that picture, great. I mean, you know, for good cause, let's say, right? Right. But it still, you know, still remains questionable whether whether that's justified. Um, well, people want to be depicted in that way. Let's get the questions in the right order, right? You know, that person was violated by international capitalism the first time. Mm -hmm. It was the second time it was violated by a photographer. Mm -hmm. The major violation in that little baby's yeah. life was done by the way aid organisations were, the way that the world economy was organised around feed and grain and population mm -hmm. movements and the economy of Ethiopia and the rest of it. So. That's where the violation occurred, mm -hmm. not by someone taking the picture. Yeah. That's a pretty incident right afterwards. Yeah. Um, uh, well, first of all, I'd say that my work is seen in the New York. I, I've always tried to work on a kind of layered sort of level. For me, it's very important that I work on a, you know, what I think is a, a feel is this like a democratic model of layers. So that if you want to pay me six thousand pounds for one of my prints, then thank you very much. I'm not going to say no to that. With six thousand pounds, I can go out and make a lot of trouble. Right, so I take that money and I roll from Peter and I use it to pay for Paul and the other things that I want to do. But I also make sure that my work appears in a book that costs 40 quid. And I also make sure that my book appears in a magazine that costs £1.20. And I also make sure that my book appears on a very expensive website, which you can access for nothing whatsoever. Even if you're sitting in Afghanistan, you can access that website. Uh, and it's, I spend a lot of money making sure that it, is, it does work on other platforms or on slow interconnections and blah, blah, blah. So that, that, for me, that idea that there are many access points into what I do is very important. Yeah. And at those different levels, different things occur. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know how many people see the website because I don't look at it, but when my work appears on the, the website of the New York Times magazine, it's seen by 8 million people. Yeah. Let's open it up again. Yes? Yeah, how has your relationship changed with the subject, your subjects, when you photograph them? Uh, you mean, how does she, how does she change? How, how, how does your life change with, with your subjects? And, uh, you know, I never really had much interaction with subjects. I'm not one of these people that makes lots of friends when they go around taking portraits. Uh, I've always been in the sort of smash and grab end of the business. So I've never really, I, you know, I, I think that one of the reasons why I stopped doing portraits is because I felt the way I did it was pretty cruel. Uh, yes, the, 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 the pictures from Afghanistan in this book, um, well certainly uh, it falls into two kind of categories really, which is pictures of the Afghans and pictures of the foreign troops. And the pictures of the foreign troops are very much influenced by uh, you know, my political feelings about what I think about the war, 
and what I think about the embedding system and what I think about how the embedding system is encapsulated and neutered any kind of political response. Uh, and instead of photographers telling me that their pictures expose what happens in the world, the outside world, I would say, on the contrary, your pictures are the reason why. It's not that there's an opposition to the world, to, to the war in this country, there's an absolute, is there a war going on? That's the response to most people about the war. You know, it's almost as if, unless you've got a, a brother that's fighting in the army, you would barely even know the war is happening. It is so disappeared behind the radar. And one of the reasons why it's disappeared behind is because the photographic record being made by photographers is so bloody awful. Uh, and it's so much in line with what the military propagandists want them to tell that any kind of opposition is just absolutely withered away. It's not even, you, can, the, you know, Vietnam, you can say there was people for the war, people against the war. Now there's everybody barely even knows the bloody war's going on. So, um, what was the question? About taking pictures of So, so the, the, the portraits that I did of the, of the army was deliberately an attempt to uh, portray them in exactly the way that my politics wanted to show them. When I photographed the British ambassador, I wanted to look like a colonial gorilla. And that's what he looks like in my picture. Uh, and, um, was it hard to negotiate? It was hard to negotiate the night before when the press officer called me up and said, oh, we're really nervous about this. Do you think they look like imperialists? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, no, don't worry about it. Yeah, 
huge thing. A friend of mine was on an airplane and somebody saw the ambassador on an airplane and said, is that the British ambassador? He's that arsehole that had himself photographed like some kind of Victorian imperialist. How could he be so stupid? But if, and if people are saying that, then he knows about it too. So I know that there was that kind of stink. But the other thing that, yeah, personally, was that the, the, uh, this young woman who was the press officer, her first foreign posting was at the British Embassy, and I spent three days in the Embassy. Uh, and I knew what I wanted to get out of it. I knew they were going to hate it. And that she was so incompetent at what she did that on the second night, when I was going back for the final day, it was a little bit of a dark night of the soul because it occurred to me that she would probably lose her job over me. Is what is what I'm doing there enough to justify it to screw this kid's career? He's doing about 27. Uh, yeah, but I mean, I, I think she probably would lose her job of allowing me to photograph the things that I got away with, and I, and I felt very bad about that. And then on the third day, I got there, and she said, "You can do a picture of the ambassador's residence." And when we walked in, she said, "Don't photograph a pool; it looks bad." I thought, "You cheeky sod! Do you think I'm going to go along with your game and not photograph because you don't want me to?" There it is. He's got a swimming pool. It's a fact. But you're saying. No, you're with us, you're in the flag, because you won't do what I am, because you want to kind of go along with the team. Well, I'm not in your fucking team. And I rather resent the fact that you think that this is a team that's being run by you on my behalf, because you are running something completely out of my control. You are operating foreign policy as if it's a private, sodding club, which I'm not invited to con contribute in some way, apart from giving you my bloody taxes. So don't try and expect me to kind of come along with you. It's a bit like when you meet someone at a party who starts talking to you in a racist way because you've got a white skin and you think you're going to go along with that little racist joke. I felt the same with her, actually. I'm pretty angry about it, so she loses her job, so. <laughs> I, I was going to ask Simon a question about whether you know, he felt subjected to self-censorship. But I think that question is already answered now. What? Patrick. <laughs> This is slightly unrelated, perhaps, but I, I, I saw the show and I'm, I'm here to talk about Burke and you, and it strikes me that you're very different photographers. I mean, he's a commercial photographer. He was there for a couple of years in some way embedded yeah. there in a yeah. way that you're coming in and out maybe 15 weeks, I think you told me you were yeah. there. And you obviously have a, a strong, you know, overt, or in, you know, political message of some kind that's driving the work. And I, I don't get that from Burke necessarily. So I'm sort of curious where you see the synergies and also the tensions between the two of you. And also, I mean, as an unrelated question, I guess, would be what, what is the ethics of you presenting him? Because he's an unknown photographer, and you're sort of leveraging his work in a certain way for your advantage, perhaps. Um, and I'm so interested about that. I mean, that's, it's that's interesting. A, that's a funny one. Somebody said to me last week, said, uh, so does Bert get any choice in you using his pictures? Well, yeah. I mean, you, you've obviously selected but out. But he doesn't. He's dead. One of the functions of being dead is he don't get to control what you do. What's interesting, too, is that Bert is actually self-censoring by not showing Bud and Gore. Because that oh, would get him in trouble. Right? Yes, I mean, get in trouble. You're not showing sure Gore for other reasons, right? Uh, yeah. But you know, once again, it's a very different photographer. It's just like it's fabulous. Do, do you think once someone is dead, we shouldn't we shouldn't reinterpret anything that they do or talk about them ever again? I mean, that's like an argument for like just living in a permanent moment. Yeah. Will your your estate allow us to do that? Say again. Will your estate allow us to do that? Surely, it's just, just a function of being dead, isn't it? Some no function of making any kind of public object is that as soon as it's a public object, other people yeah, but decide. Yeah, what, what is legal? Yeah, there are the moral I'm rights of the author. Rights of the author. The moral rights of the author. You have to respect, you know, the intention that the author had in in, in, in making the work of art. I would have thought the entire that or not. the entire function of work of art is that as soon as you make it a work of art, which is therefore a public object, yeah. it is open to be reinterpreted by someone else in a different way. If you don't want it. Don't stick it on the wall. Mm -hmm. I, can, 
I think that's absolutely. So if right. you want to, if you want to write a diary and put it in a drawer under your bed, then it's a private thing. That's fine. So if you put something on the wall, if someone wants to tell me that they think this is a funny picture and makes them laugh and think about all the dead years, I can't stop them doing that. Can I, I had a guy buy my first Afghan book and say, "Yeah, the place was really fucked, and I wanted to show my mates how fucked up it was because he'd been in the British Army then." I can't stop him doing that. So you know, you die. This picture is being used in some commercial for washing detergent. Uh -huh. We're, we're going to put some, you know, white drapes on here and so on. You know, and that's it, right? Yeah. I mean, well, is that, that right? Is that right? No, it's not right. And that's one of the reasons well, why. There's one of the reasons why I changed a lot of my work practices to move towards producing books, not working for magazines, but producing books and producing the work on a gallery wall, because on a gallery wall is somewhere where I have a chance to fix a meaning to something. When I have a picture in a picture library, in a picture agency, or even the pictures that were sold in the mail or something magazine, I don't know they're being sold until they appear in the magazine. And I don't know what the captions are going to be on the text. And it's the reason why I pushed away from photojournalism is because I don't have any conversation with the control of things. When I make a book, I am completely in charge of where that book goes, where the text goes, you look at this, you look at that. You turn over the page, it goes, <coughs> and you look at that. And you can never break that. It's one of the reasons why I'm very wary about a lot of new media stuff. Because I don't know where, where the stuff will be in three years' time. I've got a drawer full of floppy disks. I can't even read them. So what's going to happen to stuff that I've got on the web in five years, 50 years' time? But I know that if I put stuff in a museum and they pay 50 grand for it, then they will do something to look after it and look after its meanings. If I give it to them in a box with a text or with a book, then hopefully that book or that text will still be with those pictures in 50 years or 100 years' time. It's a deliberate reason why I've moved away from photojournalism towards a gallery of things, because I control more meanings there. And if I can nail the meanings on now, then there's more chance that they'll still be there when I'm not around to talk for them. <laughs> so something that came to me very much out of looking at the work of Paul Strand, who for his entire life was a Marxist, Shit, the man joined the Communist Party in 1956. Everybody left the Communist Party in 1956. Right? It's absolutely embedded in every single thing that he did. Uh, it's his politics. His entire life was spent dodging the American government. And the, the stories that he did were all about his political beliefs. And yet you can read whole biographies of Paul Strand and you will see nothing about his politics. The academies and the conservatoires have drained the politics out of his work. And when I first saw Paul Strand as a student, I thought he was just a rather dreary pictorialist who photographs mossy walls and ruddy-faced peasants. It meant nothing to me. Uh, and in actual fact, they managed to drain so much out of him that he isn't even interesting anymore. So that idea of, and I think about this more as I go on and on, and maybe it's something that function of not having kids either, but that idea of what does the work mean in the future when I'm not around to speak for it actually matters to me a great deal more. Mm -hmm. And I've made an exhibition set of the, uh, like a, a box set of the Burke pictures, uh, which I think we're going to sell them for $50,000 to museums only, an addition of five. Um, but I've already said that if anybody owns a Burke album in the archive, and they promise to put my box on the shelf next to the Burke album, they get a 25% discount. Because <laughs> I just love the idea of them sat there, kissing each other, next to each other, for the rest of time in some archive somewhere. I just love that. Um, I love it so much, I'm happy to discount them <laughs> 12 grand on the, on the product. I just think that, yeah. yeah. But it seems like, you know, you think about what you did to Burke as a, you know, as sort of an interpretive, an interpretation which is respectful of the man. Yeah. Right, yeah. 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 It's not, not like, not, you know, it's not, not like sticking the white sheets on yeah. there, you know, <laughs> this is what the difference is. Should we have a final question? Yeah. Um, I mean, what what the knack that sort of polarizes? 
things for me about because well, I think what's coming out of this, which perhaps is the same as any ethical debate, is actually it's very hard to draw up rules. It's more the quality and authenticity of, and good faithness of what you do rather than should you do it or not. Mm. There are ways in which exploiting Burke which would be horribly unethical and ways which are ethical and the, the problem with those is it's really hard to, those, to, to express those complex debates visually and I think that, that, that I mean one of the things that I that your work is quite is quite meditative in a way and it's actually one can start to spin out stories in one's own head about it looking at a photograph like that and you can't in other ways and perhaps that ambiguity is one that photographers have to come to terms with that you, unless you make those really crude images you can't actually control the message in that kind of way. That once it's out of your hands, once you've made it, you know, you can have a limited degree of control over it. But Burke is not only dead, did he ever have any moral because I, I don't I, I don't write moral arguments, the moral rights argument terribly much anyway, I'm afraid. It's been a bit of a mistake. But, uh, but that's a, that's a, that's a different question. But I think it is it's it's it, and it's starting more and more this, these are all about degree. It's whether you do it well, whether you do it truthfully not what are you doing? It's the same. It comes back. It's where it comes back to the manipulation debate. It's why are you doing it? What are you doing? It, how much are you doing with it? Rather than is it per se sort of wrong or right, which is, seems to be a futile argument. For sure. I mean, it's uh, it's, a, it's very political, and no, no one emerges from it very um, yeah. spotless. And the thing about is, they would expect it if it involves getting your boots dirty in the kind of you know, meat and gristle of certainly with this book. Um, you know, the most profound depths of human unpleasantness, which is what this thing was. It was, you know, four years worth of um, <laughs> bathos bathosphere into human awfulness. And on that note, thank you for speaking. Thank you.